Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. New Jersey Congress member Mikey Sherrill is just back from the Munich Security Conference and the Middle East, and she joins us now. She went to Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, in addition to Munich, including the Rafah crossing at the Egyptian border, Rafah being where most Gaza residents have concentrated now at Israel's direction, caught between being used as human shields by Hamas in its last military stronghold, and Israel's willingness to kill thousands of civilians to fight Hamas faster. Congresswoman Cheryl supports the current negotiations said to be making progress toward a temporary ceasefire and hostage and prisoner exchange. And as a Navy veteran who worked in the Middle East, has a master's degree in global history from the prestigious London School of Economics and Political Science, and is now a member of the House Armed Services Committee, it could be very interesting to hear her take on what might be done to save more civilian lives right now if the two warring parties insist on continuing the fight and also on longer-term solutions going forward in the context of the history of the region. Congresswoman Cheryl spent nearly 10 years on active duty in the Navy, flying missions throughout Europe and the Middle East. She then attended Georgetown Law School and served as a Russia policy officer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. Obviously, Russia is also very much in the news right now, with the death of Alexei Navalny and a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party rising. Also, just this morning, President Biden announced 500, 500 new sanctions on Russia, so we'll talk about that, too. Congressman Sher- Congresswoman Cheryl is a Democrat who represents New Jersey's 11th congressional district, which includes parts of Morris, Essex, and Passaic counties in North Jersey. Congresswoman, thanks for coming on today. Welcome back to WNYC. Well, thanks so much for having me. What did you see at the Rafa Crossing? So um, we went to the Rafa Crossing. We were on the Egyptian side. And before we went there, um, we stopped at the warehouses where they're gathering the food aid from across the world, the, the different support and humanitarian aid from across the world. And you could sense the frustration of um, the Red Crescent, members of the World Food Program, the NGOs that were there desperately trying to get humanitarian aid into Gaza. And it's really difficult. Um, I I would say it felt a bit capricious and the decisions being made as to what could go in or could not go in. We were told that there were boxes that contained medicine that were let in, but when they um, put educational material in the boxes, they weren't let in because the boxes were considered dangerous or dual use. Um, There were, uh, we were told refrigerators that were going to be let in but the ones that were delivered were slightly different models. So they weren't, they were turned away, those refrigerators. Um, There were uh, things like chocolate croissants, they said that went to the border and they were told that the people in Gaza didn't need chocolate croissants, um, that, you know, that, that wasn't kind of a a dire thing. So it felt as if there was a, um, a sense of, uh, you know, kind of, um, a lack of understanding of what exactly it was that could get across the border. A couple trucks were sent away. Um, if if there was something that was determined to be 
um, not allowed on the truck. The whole truck was turned away, not just several pallets. Um, so we brought those concerns to the Israeli government. Um, and from their end, they felt like, um, you know, they were working hard, but all of uh, the, the assistance was, you know, they were very concerned it was going directly to Hamas and certainly several, quite a few of the trucks were getting looted at this point as they were crossing into Gaza. Um, it, it's unclear now that we've defunded UNRWA. Um, I think UNRWA is still working because it still has funding from other nations, but that's a big concern because they are almost the sole source of distribution um, in Gaza, and that's so it's the unclear UN's without them. The UN's Palestinian Relief Agency, UNRWA, just so people know. Right. And there were members of UNRWA found to be participating or supporting October 7th. It's a very large organization. Um, and so uh, that I, I think there's a concern now that the U.S. is not funding UNRWA. How will um, A, B, um uh, distributed in um, Gaza right now. So I, I guess the message I brought to um, Netanyahu and to the government was, look, we've got to do more on this food aid. We've got to do more on humanitarian assistance. We have to do better there. And at the same time, I think it's very clear um, that the only time we've seen a broad release of hostages in Gaza has been during um, the, the last negotiated ceasefire. So all of these things to me say we've just really got to get to this negotiated ceasefire um, because we need to both stop the fighting so we can get humanitarian aid in there. There were problems with deconfliction. Um, trying to get aid to hospitals. I know the Jordanians had done some airlifts and felt that the people in the hospital, it was too dangerous for them to leave the hospital area to go get the medicine they dropped in. Um, so with this, and then, you know, when you speak to people about the hostages, there's a fear that every single day the hostages are being um, mistreated and in fear of, of more dying so that we really have to push hard now to make sure we get the hostage release as well, every day counts. And then every day counts for um, the people who are suffering, the Palestinian civilians suffering in Gaza. So so we've, we've really got to continue the pressure and continue the negotiations for um, the temporary ceasefire, which I think most of us hope if we can get on the pathway to getting the hostages released, the negotiations would have a, I don't think they would all be released at once, but in um, tranches and then um, get the humanitarian aid into Gaza that we could hopefully see a longer term peace um, in the area. I think everybody would understand why Israel would want to vet the relief trucks going in for supplies that might actually be directed at Hamas to help them militarily. But you were just talking about not letting one brand of refrigerator or one model of refrigerator go in because it wasn't the same model that was listed on some requisition form. And chocolate croissants, I don't think Hamas is fighting the war with chocolate croissants. You call those decisions capricious. Why do you think they were made? Is it just cruelty or some other reason? I think you have 
young people occasionally at the border making these decisions because you have more seasoned people fighting the war. Um, and so I think um, what we need to see from um, the Israelis is a, a better understanding of, of what can come in, what can't, why, where. Um, and, and that was something we really push is, is look, you should be able to provide a list of items that are allowed. Um, and then quite frankly, I think making sure um, as we're trying to get stuff in there that they are correctly put on pallets so they can be inspected well. Um, and understanding too, you know, the difficulty, it's, it's hard sometimes to get some transparency on how this is being distributed. I, I was on the Egyptian side, I was not in Gaza. Um, seeing the distribution mechanisms, there is a sense um, by the Egyptians that much of the aid is being looted. Um, and that's a real concern, especially if it goes in certain areas. So making sure that the aid can actually get to people. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, when you're talking about amputations, and, and we're hearing that there's not enough anesthesia inside um, Gaza, that just tells you the privation that people are facing. And so that and the the real fears that um you know there's on you know I, I heard from from many people who feel very much like the hostages are could even be being tortured now um as they're there so so there's this this real need on both sides i think for this negotiated ceasefire um and i'm very concerned that if we don't get that done and, and israel has set a deadline of March 9th, which is the day before Ramadan. And certainly um, in speaking to people in Amman and Cairo, there were big concerns that Ramadan um, could provide a real inflection point if we don't get that negotiated ceasefire in place before Ramadan. Um, that's when, you know, we've seen some hardliners in Israel try to use that to stoke tensions. Um, we were hearing from the Jordanians that, you know, People are fasting. Um, it's their home more. They're watching more TV on more social media. It's just a time of, of heightened tensions. And so, to the extent that that we could get that um, that temporary ceasefire in place before that, I think that would really um, that that's just really I think a critical piece. And and from what we were hearing from. Um, people in the region, both in Cairo and Amman and um, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, it, it, people felt like the negotiations continued to move ahead um, and continued to move towards a place where, where there should be some agreement. I, and I hope very much that's the case. Since you raised humanitarian aid as topic number one, um, and you described UNRWA as, yes, having this problem with some people there, who participated in or somehow supported October 7th, but it being a very large organization and vital to humanitarian aid, um, food, medicine, et cetera. Do you think President Biden should restore U.S. aid to UNRWA and let the U.S. continue to fund it while those who might support Hamas military action are weeded out? You know, we have to come up with, I think, a way of vetting people because um, 
you know, there's no sense that it is is going. The U.S. is going to lift its funding hold, um, nor, um, you know, I think would would Israelis feel comfortable with that if there's a sense that there are people within the organization that are going to utilize it to support Hamas. Um, and, and I think that is something that we have to figure out. So I don't think we figure that out while we we start supporting UNRWA again. I think we need to figure it out now so that we can vet people appropriately um, and um, continue that aid. Uh, I guess I, I, from what I was hearing, the funding for UNRWA runs out sometime next month. It's unclear when. There are other countries that are funding it. So it's still doing work on the ground. Um, which, uh, and I think we've been working with the World Food Program to try to um, support uh, the work they do, but but it is really a difficult situation made more difficult, of course, by um, by the fact that it's hard to engage right now um, on the ground in Gaza for outside groups because of the ongoing war. So, you know, I, I do think we need to, um, focus on how we get to a point where we can um, do better by the humanitarian aid and the distribution. Listeners, your questions and comments are welcome at 212-433-WNYC, call or text. First, we'd love to hear from some North Jersey constituents of Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill in the 11th Congressional District, Morristown, Montclair, Maplewood, anywhere else, or anyone else with questions or comments as the Congresswoman is just back from the Middle East and the Munich Security Conference, ready to talk about them. So on the Middle East or on Russia, which we'll get to, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So you support the cutoff of funding to UNRWA for now. President Biden says things like, Israel is engaging in indiscriminate bombing and their campaign is over the top, his words, as you know. But then he opposes initiatives in Congress to condition U.S. military aid to them more on how Israel is conducting the war. You know how that looks to the rest of the world. You probably got an earful about that in Jordan and Egypt, I'm guessing. But is that okay with you, even just from a U.S. national interest standpoint? as well as a humanitarian one with so many civilians being killed? Well, you know, I just want to walk back a second. I, I wouldn't say that I think cutting off aid to UNRWA was the right choice. Um, I think we are where we are now. And certainly with the understanding of people being involved in October 7th, that that is going to, we can't move forward now without a full investigation of that and understanding how to then vet people to um, utilize them in UNRWA. So we, we do have to figure that out. But I, I think without any other means of dis distributing aid there, um, we are likely going to figure out a way to vet UNRWA folks um, and find people who can be trusted and then distribute the aid. I just think we, you know, um, we need to do that. And, and that has to be front and center so we can get the humanitarian aid out. Um, I think that when we look to um, support for Israel, you know, much of the um, aid is both defensive and um, supports their efforts against Hezbollah. But I think we also um, were very um, clear with Netanyahu that 
the brutality of this war, if it continues, is going to imperil the long-term um, support. There are many members in the Senate and in the House that are growing increasingly concerned. And um, Netanyahu is complaining to us about the slim majorities uh, as you try to deal with a parliamentary system and, and how you have to work. And, and we just looked at him and said, you know, we have slim majorities. And so um, we need to bring people along at home. And, you know, that's why it's so critical. You are um, continuing to lose support um, if you don't make sure that as you move forward, you are protecting civilian lives in Gaza um, and that you are getting humanitarian relief and not creating a humanitarian crisis. And, and this is something I've been saying from the start, your strategy has to include what you are fighting for. You have to have a plan for what, what is going to happen to the Palestinian people. Um, I, I think it's unacceptable to think that the Palestinian people won't have their own state. Um, and, and I think if we are going to look to a future where the Arab nations in the region, both the Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, etc., are willing to help in this effort, which they are now in a way that I think feels very different from um, other times when I, I think many states in the region, ha region have either backed away from supporting the Palestinian people or just wanting to kind of ignore them. I think you're seeing an understanding that the world has to do better by the Palestinian people, and that includes a state of their own, a two-state solution. Um, I think we have to um, have that vision and understand that we're moving towards that. And while I don't think, you know, I don't agree with Netanyahu's plan as he just laid it out, and he said some of this as we were there, I do think he's now talking about a two-state solution, which you know, it was just a couple of weeks ago that he said he wasn't going to talk about a two-state solution. So we're seeing this movement towards, I think, um, a, a better vision of what the future might be. It's not where I want it to be, but I do think we're seeing movement there. I do also think that Arab nations in the region are understanding that to get to a stable Middle East, they're going to have to have a stable Israel. And that's a different place. Um, because a stable Israel, I think, is a, an Israel that, that states in the region recognize and see um, as a partner in the region. And I think all of this is coming about in many ways because of the threat that Iran presents in backing terrorism across the region. Right. So, But that, I want to pull you back in, a, into the present before we, before they get to the long term, because civilians are dying at such a rate the way the war is being fought. And so I want to come back to the, to the question um, that I asked you. Do you support conditioning U.S. military aid to Israel on it fighting the war in a more strategic way that saves more civilian lives? And if not, is it just words? I think that we should understand what our aid is being used for. I think we have a national security memo going forward that is going to require um, 
states to say that they are going to fight in line with the international laws of war and ensure humanitarian a humanitarian response. So if any aid goes out, Israel will have to certify that. Um, and so I, I, and I think that's fair to ask that. I mean, I, I think it's important that the United States ensure that as we are supporting um, How? a state in the region. How? How can we ensure it if Congress does not pass the bill that was proposed that conditions aid to the U.S. defined standards of uh, the international laws of war? Well, I think that's what, as we understand that we have to get the supplemental pass. So this supplemental package includes not just aid to Israel, but aid to Ukraine, which I think is critical, humanitarian aid, critical, um, and then aid for the Asia Pacific, which I think is critical. Um, so this is a package that, uh, because it's Congress, um, has to be negotiated because of our slim margins, we have to bring people on board and get it across. So I think the reason that people like Senator Van Holland agreed to pass the supplemental was because of the national security memo that was put out, um, which was much of what had been in his legislation. That moves that into requirements for if this aid is going to go out, that countries certify that they will in fact comply with um, these these practices. And I think what that does is hold countries accountable. And at that point that gives the executive branch the ability to determine what that military aid is going to be used for. Is it going to be used defensively? Is it going to be used against fighting Hezbollah in the North? Is that necessary? Or do we think that it is going to be used in a way against Gaza that is going to have too many civilian casualties? And do we need to um, have a discussion with Netanyahu, with the government, and say, look, this is what this is predicated on. This is what the United States will accept. And this is this would be going too far. I think if we get I think if we get the negotiated ceasefire in place, we will be much more comfortable because make no mistake, there are extremists in the region that it is important that in the region we are pushing back against, including Hezbollah, including the Houthis and others. Um, and that's why we're interested in military aid in the region to Israel. But I think many of us feel, and myself included, that the casualty numbers in Gaza, and I, I put this letter out to the administration with other national security colleagues, have been unacceptable and too high, and we cannot go forward as as has been done over the past couple let, months. Let me push you one more step on this, because for you as a 10-year Navy veteran and Armed Services Committee member, um, maybe you have something very concrete to offer here. I want to play a clip on this topic of another guest on this show this week. Maybe you know him, Mustafa Akyal a self-described liberal Muslim with the Cato Institute whose life's work is to advocate against the worldview of groups like al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hamas. 
but wrote an article in Foreign Policy magazine called The West is Losing Muslim Liberals. I asked him, since Hamas is also responsible for what's happening in Gaza, drawing this war by attacking the way it did on October 7th and embedding among civilians, could Israel have responded or respond now any other way? Here's part of his response. Well, on what Israel should technically have done, I mean, there are people who have written saying that the war could be much more targeted. It could be a bit more long-term. There could be more emphasis in saving the refugees, sorry, uh, the hostages through negotiations, which is actually almost the only way that has been used to, uh, has been successful to uh, in, in saving the hostages. Just yesterday, uh, Zach, Zach Buchamp in uh, Vox magazine has an article, How Israel's Went Wrong, and he says he spoke to military experts and it could have been much more different, much more pointed, not this ferocious and not this harmful. Again, I'm not a military expert, but a lot of military experts have said that this was not the only way and this is too indiscriminate and too catastrophic. Mustafa Akil on Wednesday's show. Congresswoman, with your military experience, would you agree with his basic take and could you get specific about how Israel could be fighting the war with more protection for civilians? And did you give, it, give any specifics like that to the Israelis you spoke with on your trip? Yeah, so, you know, I think much of what he just said is much of what I've just been expressing. The idea that the, the civilian casualty rate has been too high. The idea that um, the only way the hostages have actually been released has been through diplomacy not through military means, and the understanding um, that as we go forward, we have to, you know, what I have said, and, and I was very, you know, I've been very clear with the Israelis on this, and, and I've pushed back incredibly hard and, and have done so with other members of my caucus who are veterans of the global war on terrorism. Eradicating terrorism, eradicating Hamas is not a military strategy. Um, in fact, as I've said to the Israelis, um, there is more support now for Hamas than there was before October 7th. Um, their recruiting will be far easier now than it ever was before October 7th. And so I, I think what we have here, as we have been pushing back on Israel to say, there is a different and better way forward. Um, the Arab nations seem to be in a very different space in understanding why um, coming to a two-state solution, why decide, you know, why having a stable Israel is necessary, why this is giving so much power to Iran, and how it's important that the region come together in a better and different way. And the, the next 75 years don't look like the last 75 years in the region. Israel, however, I think, um, you know, from the leadership, I was the people I was speaking to there would push back and say, sure, uh, you hear that from our Arab leadership, but they are still saying very anti-Israel, uh, very anti-Semitic things to their population. And they push back and say they have to because their population is very pro-Hamas now. And so they can't say anything differently. And so it feels, and, and this is where I think U.S. leadership is so 
critically important because it feels of if if we don't engage here um i do think that we get into this vicious cycle of everyone realizing there's a better way forward but nobody having faith in the other uh people to actually see it through so they are going to just be um just execute their own vision without you know and try to keep others out of it because they don't actually believe peace is possible or they don't mm -hmm. actually believe a different future is possible and i think that's where the united states has to get engaged and has to continue as we have to push this negotiated ceasefire to well, push the two state solution to push people in the region um to come together and to realize that this is you know this is not in the interest of anyone in the region other than Iran and the Iranian backed terrorists we'll continue in a minute with our last minutes with North Jersey Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill a few of your questions and we're going to touch on the Russia situation too stay with us on WNYC. A few more minutes with North Jersey Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, just back from the Middle East and the Munich Security Con uh, Conference. Congresswoman, listener question via text message. I understand the difficulty in doing so, but when will officials like Representative Sherrill call for Netanyahu to step down? He's never acted in good faith and is likely lying about supporting a two-state solution. So I've been really critical of Netanyahu. Um, I, you know, um, I, ha you know, might hope for a different leader in Israel, um, but I don't vote in Israel. Um, this is not my decision. He is the leader that is in power right now who we have to work with. So, you know, people can, can sort of wish they there was different leadership, but but we have to deal with who the people in Israel have chosen to lead or the, who has formed the coalition, um, even if but he's the US, unpopular US can there. Speak, prominent Americans can speak more loudly or more softly about that, right? You know, we can't. I, I've, I've said that um, he's not the leader that Israel needs right now. Uh, again, he is the leader Israel has right now. So you can sort of hold two thoughts that, you know, gosh, I wish there was someone a little more thoughtful in this space, but continue to work with the leadership to get him in the space you want him in. And again, um, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of in a never say die moment here of continuing to fight for, uh, I, I think, a different outcome for Israelis and Palestinians in the future. And I think, um, continuing to push Netanyahu into a better space. And, and while um, he is not where I want him to be right now, he certainly is even sounding different on discussing a two-state solution than he was a couple weeks ago. And there is also, um, I think that Israelis themselves are maybe not um in a space to be ready to move forward I, I maybe they are you know it seemed to me when i was there they were possibly 
well, Netanyahu might not be popular there. I don't think Benny Gantz, for example, is very far off um, what he thinks about the prosecution of this war, um, very far off from Netanyahu and what he might think the future is. I think Israelis are fairly aligned. They, um, they are very concerned about the hostages. The hostage families are communicating very um, strongly with the Israeli population. I think um, people are still processing the horrors of October 7th and very much somebody said to me every day is October 7th to me. Mm -hmm. If you are in that mindset, it's very hard to say, okay, um, we've been attacked by Hamas. Horrible atrocities have been committed, the likes of which, you know, I think we rarely hear about. Um, they're so hard to even believe. Um, and you want me now to worry about humanitarian aid? I, I, all I care about is, is making sure they can never attack Israel again and getting the hostages free. Mm. So I think, I think that's also something that maybe we don't quite take into account here. But the reason to keep Do, pushing... Did you, is, did you yeah. find, because I've heard a lot of reports of this in the news, that the hostage families are pressuring Netanyahu for some kind of ceasefire more quickly because they think mm -hmm. that's the key to getting the hostages released and they don't support the war the way it's being fought. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so just to... Yeah, it was very interesting, too, in speaking to some of the Jordanians who've worked closely with Israelis for many, many years. You know, some of them said on a couple occasions, I don't even recognize the people I've worked with for years. Um, for example, the militaries have tons of mill-to-mill -mill contact, have eaten with each other, have worked together. And they say, you know, I don't even recognize people I've known for decades now um, because of the trauma of October 7th. But to your point... Mm -hmm. Yes, I was hearing that. In fact, I was hearing that there was some um, disagreement at times between the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, their military, and the hostage families, because the only time we've seen a substantial release of the hostages was during the last negotiated ceasefire. So that is what the hostage yes. families believe right. and, and I believe will lead to the best chances of release of the hostages. And, and um, I want to, and we, and, uh, I yeah. want to get one, one more listener comment in for you. Gary in little ferry, I think is on the other side from the other commenter who we took Gary, you're on WNYC. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. The problem with a two state solution is security for Israel. If Palestine has an army, they will certainly attack Israel very, very quickly. And remember this, Israel could win a thousand wars, but if it loses one war, it's finished. And I happen to agree about, ben, about the leadership in Israel. I think it's not very good. I think they should take responsibility for October the 7th, and Ben Gurionu should resign. He's no Ben-Gurion, I'll tell you that. Gary, thank you very much. Well, I don't know how many... Israelis he speaks for, uh, but there is pushback on even a two-state solution for Israeli security purposes, as he describes it. Uh, but then in that scenario, they would be occupying Palestinians, um, especially in the West Bank, 
for because they want to get out of Gaza. They did get out of Gaza, but they continued the blockade. But they would be occupying Palestinians forever. I think that the idea of the two-state solution um, would be an understanding that there would not be a standing military. And certainly we had restrictions in the aftermath of World War II on um, what type of security forces um, Japan and Germany could have. And certainly it would be very restricted in the pal- in Palestine um, with a two-state solution. However, I think the idea that Israel would have full responsibility for the security is probably one of the larger disagreements between Israel and the vision that the United States has. Yeah. I, I don't think it is the Palestinians that would have security forces at the outset. Um, but I and I think Israel would have to have some hand in that to understand how they are being kept secure. But um, I do think this is where the Arab nations really come into play along with the United States, and how are we going to ensure the security of Israel um, in a two-state solution? And, and, and this is, you know, this is where the, these negotiations are going. This is probably one of the areas that these negotiations are going to be really difficult. Right. Um, that said, I still think there is a path forward for a two-state solution, but I think Gary's right. Yes. In the outset, it won't be uh, with a, a and that's always been one of the Palestine. sticking points from the Israeli side is can they trust either Palestinian moderates in power or Arab countries participating to actually police groups like Hamas, which would want to continue the fighting um, effectively. Before we run out of time, just briefly on Russia, uh, you were a Russia policy expert in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. Uh, President Biden, we know what happened to Navalny. I think you heard Navalny's widow and Vice President Harris on this at the Munich Security Conference last night. And now just today, President Biden announced 500 new sanctions against Russia. But many listeners may think, what's the point? We already sanctioned them like crazy and their economy doesn't seem to get hurt very much. So what can be done most effectively with respect to Russia? I think the most effective thing we could do is pass the security settlement for Ukraine. Um, yes, it was incredibly moving. I, we, we had a large bipartisan delegation to the Munich Security Conference, one of the preeminent security conferences across the world. Uh, many of our NATO allies were there. Uh, there was a lot of discussion of our new NATO allies, Finland and Sweden. Um, and uh, a longtime ally, Norway, was talking about those the exercises that would be done and the security that would present um, in the high north. But uh, I think coming into the Munich Security Conference and getting the news almost immediately, it was within hours of, of arriving on the ground in Munich, um, we heard that Navalny had died in, in a Russian prison um, under questionable circumstances. His wife was there. She had talked to him the night before. He sounded healthy. And I think she was there at the security conference to advocate for more rights for the Russian people. And to then have her come on the stage within hours of receiving the news, to see the devastation, it brought a very personal aspect to, I think, the fight that the Ukrainians have and why to them the domination of Russia and of Putin is completely unacceptable. To live 
under the aspect that you can't speak against the government. And if you really advocate for change or for human rights or for civil rights, um, you you know you have to do so at the expense of your life. It just put a very fine point on on what um, the Ukrainian fight is about, what the fight for democracy means, and and. I think the understanding that the U.S. and our NATO allies have about democracy and why it's so critically important at home. So um, it, it was really, it was really emotional to hear. So, speak, so last uh, question right for for you as for you as a member of Congress. Last question is Speaker Mike Johnson leading a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party at this point in history. Um, you know, it seems as if the extremists uh, in the Republican Party have a pro-Putin bent. We've heard it from former President Trump. We certainly have seen Tucker Carlson go oddly interview uh, Putin. Um, we've certainly heard, even at the outset of the Ukrainian conflict, we heard Mike Pompeo suggest, um, you know, more support for Russia than the Ukrainians at the very outset. He's, I think, changed his his opinion there but but it does seem as if there is a far right that has grown increasingly supportive of strong men orban um even president you know she was I, I think trump admired him when he became president for life so you know i i think when you see um that movement in the far right you know it becomes very difficult now you know, I think when you look at Speaker Johnson, I, I, I've said earlier, when we were in the military, there was a phrase, when you wanted to get something done, you had to lead, you had to follow, or you had to get out of the way. And that's exactly what Mike Johnson has to do right now. He has to lead the Congress, the House, into passing the bipartisan security supplemental, overwhelming numbers, over 70 members of the Senate passed it. He has to lead the passage of that in the House. He has to, if he can't do that, I think just uh, follow Democrats as we work to pass it, or he just has to get out of the way and we'll all find a, path, a bipartisan path forward. But um, right now he is, you know, he is just not presenting a plan um, to get that across the finish line. And, and, you know, we know that traditionally Ukraine has had about 300 votes in the House, so we should have the votes to pass it. We just need to get it on the floor. North Jersey Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, thank you very, very much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me.